morning, everyone. Great to be with you today. As you can see, we're taking a look at the twin concepts of suffering in wisdom literature in the Bible, and we are moving through the book of Job to help us do that. Let's get into our time in God's Word. We are going to be looking at the end of the book today, Job chapter 38 and 42. You can follow along on the screen or in the Bible you brought with you to a church. All right. Job chapter, I know it's counterintuitive, but we do do that still here nonetheless. So Job 38, 1 through 11, here we go. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched a line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors and I said, thus far you shall come but no farther and here shall your proud wave stop. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. And it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you for I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly. Because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite, went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. And all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house. Yeah. So as you can see, we've been looking at the book of Job, which is, it's real. uh, As we've seen, it's raw. It's in your face. It's both incredibly modern and and a a challenge, really, to us as modern people. It's all about the life of Job, who was a, a pillar in his community, a great father, great businessman, who, through no fault of his own, in a day, loses his family, loses his health, his wealth. And the book shows us Job's wrestling with his pain, with his friends, and his wrestling with God over what it all means and how he should be handling it. And throughout all of his speeches, there are basically two things that keep bubbling up from Job's heart, from his soul, and they are that Job wants an explanation and Job wants vindication. He wants an explanation for his suffering and he wants vindication in his suffering. And to get those things, Job has demanded that God appear before him and answer him. And if you've been following along with the story, of course you know that the book, the story, can only end in one way, with God himself now. After 30 plus chapters of people talking all about him, actually now showing up 
and giving his answer to Job, which we'll actually be spending two weeks on starting today. This morning, I want to work through it, apply to us as individuals. The next week, cast some vision from it and apply it to us as a church. So what about God's answer? Well, for years, many skeptics have been infuriated with it. Uh, Carl Jung in particular, you may know that name, the disciple of Sigmund Freud, called it amoral. The atheist playwright George Bernard Shaw called it a sneer. Hmm. But Christian philosopher Peter Kreeft calls it satisfying. Yeah, and Kreeft put it like this. He said, the book of Job is a mystery. A mystery satisfies something in us, but not our reason. The rationalist is repelled by Job, as Job's three rationalist friends were repelled by Job. But something deeper is satisfied by Job and is nourished. It puts iron in your blood. And I'd agree. So let's take a look at the satisfying, and here's the word, the satisfying surprises here at the end of the book of Job. There are a number of them, only got time for three this morning. Let's look at, number one, how God speaks. Number two, the the surprise of what God says. And finally, surprisingly, who God saves. Try to apply them as we go. Number one, let's look at how God speaks here. After everything Job has been through, if you read the book, you see that God now has come and he asks Job mm, 77 or so questions, depends on who's counting here, including these stunners. He says, who is this, right, that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Can you, Job, send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. And of course, most importantly, who sent out the wild donkey free? That last question, of course, coming dangerously close to a copyright violation of the famous question posed by the Baha men back in 2000 when they asked, who let the dogs out? All right. Sorry. And I couldn't resist. It was just right there. Despite all the questions, God's now, you'll never read that verse the same way again, I guarantee you. All right. He's come here, here's the surprise, to show you the surprising reality of who he really is. I mean, what kind of God is this? Who is the God of the Bible? Who's the God of Christianity? Oh, we get three clues from one verse, Job 38.1. It says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. First, let's look at who is speaking here. Now, here in this verse, God is suddenly called by his love name, his intimate name. This is his covenant name here, used here in Hebrew. It's the name Yahweh, which up till now has been almost completely not used, unused, and absent in the book. And here, the Hebrew reader would know what's being communicated when it makes its appearance. This is telling you, this is not just a distant deity. This is not just a stuffy judge. But the one who has come to speak to Job is the one we see Jesus reveal to the world. This is a loving father, a loving father. This is Yahweh, the one who loves, the one who saves, the one who redeems and heals his people. And that's who speaks, but how does he speak? Well, it says Yahweh answered Job. This word answered means literally a dialogue between friends. See, elsewhere in the book, when God talks, when he speaks to Satan, it says God only replies. That means there's, there's distance. There's no intimacy, no connection. 
as you would hope. Uh, but here God is showing the point is friendship towards Job. Yeah, what he says, oh, it's mind-blowing, right? It's mysterious, but there's relationship being demonstrated. And as a matter of fact, in this conversation with God, in contrast with the ones God has with Satan, where God always has the final word, here in the book, Job has the final word in his conversation with God. And third, look at where this God answers Job from. When he comes, where does he speak from? A recliner, huh? You know, his barca lounger? No, it says it comes and answers from what? The whirlwind. This is a storm, literally a storm wind. See, God here, he's appearing in a hurricane, in a hurricane, and to every Old Testament reader, oh, they would have thought uh, they knew what was coming next because the storm wind in the Old Testament was a, was a token. It was a symbol, a sign of God's judgment on sin. See, God, uh, at Mount Sinai in Exodus, when, when he came to the mountain, when he gave the Ten Commandments, he came as a storm in his holiness. And if a person even touched the mountain where the storm was, they would have been killed. See, the storm here, it represents God's holiness, his otherness, his total differentness than mankind. And almost every time it appears in the Bible, it means judgment on sin. And yet, here there's no judgment, no death, no condemnation of Job. All right. Now, can you see the surprise of who God is here? God here, can you see, comes as both incredibly loving and as an infinitely holy supernatural force, both at the same time. He's both personal and powerful, which means a simple truth, that this God is unlike the gods of any other faith system and especially unlike the gods of our personal preferences. And here's what I mean. Traditional conservative religion, you know, has no problem with the idea of an all-powerful, right, a remote, judging God. But traditional conservative religion has got no concept of the loving, personal God who, who comes down into a, a relationship with his creation to, to restore, right, to rescue, to heal, to support, to be patient toward, identify with, oh, Traditional faith loves the holiness of the God of the hurricane, but can't handle the nearness of a father's heart. Oh, but modern liberal religion is just the opposite. We today, we love the God who comes near. We love that. Who knows us, right? Uh, Who relates with us. But we today, man, we can't handle the God of the hurricane. The God who's got the right to bring a level of judgment into our lives. We just want to be, don't we, supported and affirmed in every choice we ever make. And we reject any form of God or faith or church that won't do that for us. Let me ask you now, what kind of a God do you have in your life? A traditional God of judgment or a modern God who never judges anyone? Hmm? Or do you have the eternal God of Job 38.1. In his recent book called The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope, Columbia University professor Andrew Del Banco, he asked a question. It's a good one. He asks, why is American culture struggling so much today? 
And he said, his answer was that in essence, we're struggling as a culture because we're struggling over what our nation's story is all about. This, what he calls our cultural narrative or the story behind our nation. And he said that any cultural narrative must, here's the quote, help us imagine some end of life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days and hours if we are to keep at bay the lurking suspicion that all our getting and spending amounts to nothing more, this is his famous quote, than fidgeting while we wait for death. So he's saying that at the heart of a nation's story is a big idea of what that country or nation is all about. So he asks, what is American life all about today? Well, he said, if you go back a bit in time, at first in our nation's history, at a fundamental level, it was about living for the glory of God. Now, before you get irritated about that, consider Del Banco is a committed skeptic. He is no friend of Christianity, and he's not saying, nor am I saying, that a return to ye olden days would be the way forward. But then, and here's his point here, hang with him. Then he points out shortly after its founding, America moved away from the concept of God at the center to the idea of America as savior for the world, right? And he pointed out that was a real step away from having God at the center. And while not good though, he says, well, at least it offered something larger than just an individual person. But now he says the God story and the nation story have run their courses, which is why, in general, faith in God or love of country are, in general, laughed at today by our cultural elite. And now, he says, we're left with, not with God as a story, nor as the nation as a story, but only with the individual as a story in the nation. And he points out again and again that what the, uh, an individual wants, what an individual uh, needs and insists on is what drives our laws, right? Drives our culture, drives our politics, which is why he says we're so divided over politics. We're so divided over faith and the internet comments sections feel more like drive-by shootings than a reasonable conversation about anything. And he noted, ironically, as we have become bigger as individuals, we've become smaller as a nation. He says, our country has shrunk because our story has shrunk. Does that make sense? And ultimately, he said, this is why hope, his opinion, has narrowed to the vanishing point. But what? Let me tell you. What the wisdom of the book of Job tells us is this, is that God actually has a story for you. He does as an individual and a story for our nation, for any nation, a story that's bigger uh, and wilder and far more impactful and meaningful than the small and tame and meaningless in general little stories that maybe our hearts have bought into along the way. You say, well, I mean, I want a big story. How do I get that? Okay, here it is. The answer is what Job 38.1 shows you. To get a God-sized story in your life or in a country, you need a God-sized God who is both loving and just. The God who comes near to the sufferer, holds him or her up, but a God who's untamable, who's ultimately holy. But, and if we only accept, can you see, the parts of God or the parts of the Bible that we love, I mean, we're just like that old, that old cartoon character, you know, Marvin the Martian, with his ray gun, right, shrinking down what he doesn't like to this manageable size. But that's what we do to God. But in doing so, see, we either reduce God to being impotent, powerless, because he can't judge anyone, or we reduce him to being angry all the time. 
because he won't love anyone. Oh, but it takes, can you see, the whole Bible to experience the whole of God. And let's just face it, that's tough. It's tough for us today, tough for me today. Because today in our neck of the woods, in our Western world, because there's no higher way that an individual can express themselves than through their sexuality, sexual choices. We don't like the parts of the Bible. I don't like the parts of the Bible that put a limit on what we think our story ought to be, right? We don't like the hurricane that tells us we're small. We're limited. We don't know everything or the way things ought to be. So we want to throw that part of God out because he doesn't fit in with our culture. But here's the point. This God doesn't fit in with any culture because he's not a person. A human, I should say. He's Yahweh, God of the hurricane. See, and in that way, we're no different than a billion people on the other side of the world who love what the Bible says about sex and sexuality. Probably think the Bible doesn't go far enough, as a matter of fact. Loves the teaching of Bible on judgment or wrath of God. But they choke on the Bible's teaching to forgive one's enemies, love one's enemies of a God who would take on skin and flesh and come. We reject the hurricane. They reject the Father, but neither in the end has this, who God has actually revealed himself to be. See, the book of Job is appealing to you, to us. Don't do to God what you forbid other people to do to you, right? We demand people accept all of us just as we are, but then we turn around to God and say, I don't accept all of you, right? The irony is, the irony is, in making God smaller, we make ourselves smaller. We make our stories smaller, right? Oh, but you say, okay, Morgan, you got a point, although I don't really like it, but you got a point. How do I know I can trust this God, right? And and his laws and his, his limits. How can I trust him enough to maybe conform to what he says in every area. Well, I don't know how Job could, but I know how you can, how I can. Anyway, you can trust him enough to conform your life to his. Hear this. Because he loved you enough to conform his life to yours. Jesus Christ placed limits on his own self, took a body with limits, and on the cross took the hurricane of God's holiness into his own heart, even to death. Not so you and I could just be free to follow our own hearts, but now that we could be free to follow his into life, into a big story. Listen, do you want a big story or a small one? then you got to see what every person in the Bible who's ever done great things for God has discovered, that this God is far more powerful and far more personal than any they'd ever imagined. Because this is a God who says to you, come as you are, right? I mean, come with your brokenness, come with your flaws, every way of thinking, all your addictions, all your mistakes, all your hangups, all your depression, all your sadness, all your shame, all your guilt, all your objections, all your skepticism, and just come on where you are as you are. I'll receive you. And this is a God who says, come as you are, but I'm not gonna leave you as you are because this is a God who meddles he meddles. I mean, he shepherds. He gets involved. He also changes, humbles, feels, heals, challenges, enlarges to make us more loving, wise, and free in the end. That's the God of Job 38.1. That's the God you and I need. A God who takes us as we are, right where we are, but doesn't leave us the same. And hear me, 
when we're in our right minds, when I'm in my right mind, that's the kind of God I really want. The kind of God I really want. Second surprise. Let's look at what God says. Moving on. The second surprise here, actually, perhaps the biggest surprise in the book that people point to when they read it is actually what God says, or should I say, the surprise is what God doesn't say here. Oh, God doesn't say here. Because when you get to the end of God's speeches, you sort of realize, hey, this, this says God answers Job, but I don't see a whole lot of here what I would call answers, right? What's going on? And if that's you, well, you're, you're asking the same thing as Job, as Job's friends, and pretty much anybody who's ever read the book. Because Job expected an explanation, right? Job's friends expected condemnation of Job, but nobody gets neither. Figure that double, triple negative out and maybe it'll make sense. All right, I don't know. But what God does give are these long speeches about nature and animals and lightning, but there's nothing in there about that whole beginning part of the book, right? Which told us why the whole thing was happening. Where uh, When you read it, you see God pointing out Job and saying, hey, 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 y'all, have you seen my servant Job? Man, he's amazing. That boy is fantastic. Look at him, nobody like him. But what does Satan do, right? I mean, and you see in the story, Satan's the cynic. He, he says, well, of course, Job loves you, God. You do stuff for him, right? You've blessed him. Take away any reason he has for serving you. Let me make him bleed a bit, God. And we'll see what happens. Let's talk then. And so God allows Satan and to do that. And Job is plunged into this nightmare, though he doesn't know why. But we do. We actually, we actually know there's a reason for Job's suffering, even though he doesn't. And so you expect here at the end of the book, at the end of the movie, when God finally answers in the last scene, he'll tell Job all about Satan. And that heavenly counsel stuff. Give Job the explanation he's always wanted. I mean, you, as the reader, you are dying. When you read God's answer, you're practically begging God, just tell the man. <laughs> There's a reason. Everybody can see it. Let him in on it. But let me tell you, your longing for Job to get an explanation actually points you in your heart to the brilliant wisdom the Bible is trying to teach you here, which is that God can't give Job that, not, and actually still defeat Satan's accusation. You say, well, what do you mean? I mean, Satan said, remember, the reason Job serves you, God, is because you've given him reasons. Take away every reason and watch what happens. So if God would have come here and said, you know, son, you're suffering, but let me let you in on a little secret while you're going through it. I'm actually making you so big and large and your life so meaningful that the very mention of your name can defeat Satan, right? It's going to be written down. Your suffering is going to change the world. A billion people are going to hear about you. Uh, and, and Job, there are going to be people in that, in that mosaic church, you know, where I, I like to hang out on Sunday sometimes, you know, in Austin, Texas. And, and they're going to hear about you. And if God had done that, what would he have been giving him? See, a reason to hang in there. Job could have thought, man, I'll hang in there to encourage those mosaic folk, or I'll hang in there to defeat Satan. Never liked the guy anyway, you know. Or I'll hang in there to get that book deal where they write all about me. (laughs) But if he had, Satan's accusation would still have stood. It would all have been for nothing. Why is Job so great? Here's why. Because he never got an answer. And the fact that God never gave him one, made him greater. 
It was out of love in the long run. See, we would never be giving him the honor he deserves now if at the end of the book God would have come and spilled the beans. Francis Anderson's got a great commentary on Job, and he writes this. He says, It is one of the many excellences of the book that Job is brought to contentment without ever knowing all the facts of the case. The test would work only if Job did not know what it was for. God thrust Job into an experience of dereliction to make it possible for Job to enter into a life of naked faith, to learn to love God for himself alone. God has not seemed to give this privilege to many people. For they pay a terrible price of suffering for their discoveries. But part of the discovery is to see the suffering itself as one of God's most precious gifts. To withhold the full story from Job even after the test was over keeps him walking by faith, not by sight. He does not say in the end, now I see it all. He never sees it all. He sees God. Perhaps it is better if God never tells any of us the whole of our life story. Yeah. And if you've ever seen the movie or the play called Amadeus, and you've seen the story of the famous court composer in the 18th century, a man by the name of Salieri. And early in Salieri's life, uh, as a musician, as a composer, Salieri offers up this prayer to God. He said, Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be famous through the world. In return, I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life. And I will help my fellow man... Amen. So you can see he makes his deal with God and he begins to live his life and and he does it. I mean, he works hard in in his job. He's sexually restrained. He helps the poor tirelessly. Salieri's in church all the time. And for a while, it it looks like God's keeping up his end of the bargain. Salieri keeps on moving up in the world and everything is right until he appears. Who is he? Well, it's Mozart, of course. And when Mozart, the composer, comes to Vienna, his massive talent dwarfs Salieri's meager talent. And Mozart's hugely successful. He steals a spotlight from Salieri. And Salieri can't understand why, because, at least in the play, in the movie, Mozart's vulgar. He's irreligious, no fear of God. He's immoral, chases women, gets drunk. He's lazy, and yet God apparently continues to bless him. And Salieri finally says in this flashback confession to a priest, he said it was incomprehensible. Here I was denying all my natural lust every day to earn God's blessing. And here was Mozart indulging his in all directions every day without a rebuke from God. Nothing but success. Salieri, he can't take it. And he finally, in this one scene, if you've seen the movie, it's a famous one. He takes the crucifix off the wall and he throws it in the fire. And he says, from now on, God, we are enemies, you and I. And his heart grows so dark and bitter. In the end, he murders Mozart. And at the very end of the movie, he begins to protest. He says, oh, I, I, I was a servant of God. You know, I served my fellow man. God, you turned me into this. And the irony of the whole thing is that the conservative religious Salieri is no better than, he's actually worse, than the secular Immoral Mozart. Why is this? Oh, it's because, hear this, Salieri was what Satan accused Job and every one of you of being. A phony, a fraud, a fake. He said, Sally, so Sally, we see Sally only served God and others because he thought God would bless him if he did. But once the blessing was removed, once he didn't get life the way he wanted, what happened? Oh, he did what Job's wife said Job should have done. 
he cursed God and died. But Job never did. Job never did. He never threw a crucifix in the fire, although he didn't have one, right? He never called God his enemy in the end. And as a matter of fact, at the end of the book, what did Job say? He said, oh, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you, therefore I retract, I take it back. I repent in dust and ashes. In other words, here's what Job is saying. He's saying, I may not have seen why I suffered, but God, I have seen you, and that's enough. I haven't heard a reason, but I have heard you speak to me, and that's enough. See, his God was so big, so large, so wise, he couldn't be angry anymore. But Salieri's God was so small. And you can know this because of the anger. The anger, right? When things didn't go according to plan, the gap between he, who he thought God ought to be and who God really was was exposed and his heart raged. What's the difference between the two? It's this. Salieri never understood the gospel. The gospel, which is that God saves by sheer grace. Not because a person does good things, or is a nice person, a good person in general. So how can we get that? How can we grasp that truth, that gospel? Oh, it's by seeing this third final surprise in the book. Who God saves. When you get to the end, the book ends with two twists. First, God actually does vindicate Job. Job doesn't get the explanation, but he does get the vindication because in all God's speeches, God never accuses Job of sin, you see. But then second, even more wildly, God comes to Job's friends and condemns them. The Lord said to Eliphaz, a Timonite, my wrath is kindled against you, against your buddies. You haven't spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. And then, then God tells Eliphaz and the other two friends, he says, go make a sacrifice and have Job pray for you. And then God says, my servant Job will pray for you. And then look what it says. It doesn't say when Job prays, I'll forgive you. No, no. It says when Job prays, God says, I will accept him. I'll accept Job. In verse nine, so Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they went and did as the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job. Now I put the NSB translation here because most translations won't even give you what it reads here, which is, this seems stunning, right? Almost heretical, maybe impossible because most translations read, the Lord accepted Job's prayer or Job's sacrifice or Job's intercession or something Job did, but that's not what it says. It says the Lord accepted Job, the man, the person. What is this? God forgives Job's friends because he accepts Job. You say, well, I, I thought God just didn't forgive people without, you know, a sacrifice. So maybe that's what it was. You know, there was a sacrifice. Yeah, God accepted the sacrifice. Now we can forgive Job's friends. Oh, but that's not what it says. It says God accepted Job. This is the only place in all the Old Testament where it says this, which means you'll never get it, never understand it, or the book of Job fully, unless we do with this and the whole book, which you've got to do with every book in the Bible, which is to understand it in light of the New Testament and the person of Jesus Christ, who said every story was really about him. You say, how is that? Like this. God could forgive 
those men who abused and betrayed his child because of the intercession of one righteous sufferer, Job, who points us to a greater sufferer and a far more innocent child of God, Jesus of Nazareth. See, Jesus, he didn't get a voice out of the storm, did he? No, he got silence, and he went into that storm, into the hurricane of God's wrath for all the ways we have abused God, used others. And Jesus was willing to live Job's life to its logical conclusion. Jesus was killed by the storm. Job, he was relatively innocent. Felt like God was abandoning him, even though he wasn't. Oh, but Jesus was absolutely innocent. And God did abandon him as Jesus' own life and own suffering became the sacrifice that God accepted so that all of us who are under God's wrath can go free. Now, perfectly loved, perfectly accepted, perfectly forgiven. And the surprise of the end of the book is this, that God saves the ones, forgives the ones who are interceded for. This word means born. It means carried by one innocent sufferer. See, Job carried, bore his friends in prayer. But Jesus has borne us, carried us on the cross. And listen, that's the gospel. But it's not enough. Not enough to hear this or just know this. You have to put your faith in it. Put your trust in it. Surrender to it. Years ago, when I walked into a a small chapel room, the University of Houston campus, because a friend dragged me there that day, I had no idea what was going to happen to me when I I walked in. I grew up in church. Maybe it's some like some of you. I knew all about God, knew who Job was, never really doubted God existed. But I arrived at the place where I was God in my life, accepted parts of him, but rejected others, showing that I was God not really God in my life. Oh, but a man called me out of the crowd that day, asked if he could pray for me, and he began to do so in a supernatural way, saying things only a loving and supernatural God could know. And despite all my pride, uh, self-addiction, lust, the same God who laid the foundations of the earth, who set a boundary for the sea, who let the wild donkey go free, came into my life. I felt his love call out to me. I surrendered, tired of living a lie, tired of doing it all on my own, and I prayed, God, make me new. See, I wanted to be new. I didn't need new information. Some of you don't either. I needed a new heart. I needed a new start. I didn't need a God who would just accept me. Oh, I was desperate for a God who would change me. See, and there's a difference. The reason I kept falling back into sin, maybe like some of you, is because I had a small God just on the shelf for me when I felt bad about myself. See, never let him be Lord. Never let him be the storm God, the God of the hurricane. And when I quit trying to tame God, my life changed. Yours can as well. There's a great line in a, a movie that came out not too long ago called The Zookeeper. Maybe you've seen it with, with Matt Damon where he's a widower. His wife's died. He's trying to rescue a zoo and some animals and come to terms with his life now as a single father. There's this great line in it. It says, sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. I love that. 20 seconds of insane courage. That's all it took for me to surrender to God, men to ask my wife to marry me, men to move here to Austin, Texas. 20 seconds of insane courage can change a person's life. 
I wonder if some of us would have that today. Let's go to God in prayer and trust him for that right now.